Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind in the Southern Hemisphere. I'm half of your hosts, Nicholas Lorimer, and of course, as always, joined by the other half of your hosts, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. Right, so uh, I think we are actually recording on a Friday today, and hopefully this will go up on Friday or maybe on Saturday. Um, Wait, Nick, you didn't uh, say our catch line. Our catch line is... Two crickets in a thorn tree, the smoothest glass of No, I did say that. For you your mind, this side of Mars. That is oh, the this whole. side of Mars. Oh, okay. Yes. I didn't realize that we'd expanded our scope so much. We had um, in a dream I had. And spe- now it is reality. Speaking of speaking of Mars, do you see how Elon Musk is trolling the stock market again? Yeah, I have look, I have a view on this, which is that and uh, Dogecoin's, uh, I had this view before Dogecoin <laughs> went up. One minute spiel, because this is not a major topic. So I've, I've got some, uh, I've got a close older friend who has been in the crypto right. space for years and trying to use, for example, he tried to offer a product that would allow government to use blockchain technology to manage the social grant system in a way that would be super cheap. And so on and so forth. Okay. So a smart IT guy used to work at one of the big smart IT companies and sort of now tries to help out in South Africa. That's one reason I've got views about crypto. Another reason is because I read David Graeber's book, Debt to History 5,000 Years, in 2012, and it changed my life. And in 2012, he was writing about Bitcoin just when it came out and crypto. And in 2013, I lived with a guy who was in the world's first uh, Bitcoin uh, hedge fund or 2014, right. whatever it was, in, in, in Moscow. So I'm saying this because I'd like my authority uh, rather than my <laughs> arguments to have some weight uh, to make the following very simple point. Most people have thought about Bitcoin as a currency for a very long time, and that's because stupid, okay? Bitcoin, <laughs> to the smarty pantses, uh, have, has never, it's never been useful to think about it as a currency. Do you think about bonds as a currency? Would you like to buy a Coca-Cola with a South African bond or pay for your electricity with a South African bond or with stocks in Anglo-American or uh, metal steel? No. Bitcoin, from the very beginning, it's not a new idea that Bitcoin takes so much energy to mine and takes an amount of energy to transfer that it doesn't make sense uh, to use it as at scale in the same way that we use five rand coins or the digital equivalent thereof. Okay. Thinking of it as currency, in my opinion, and an opinion that's remained unchanged more or less since 2012, has always been silly. And the guys who use Bitcoin to buy pizzas, everyone laughs at that story today. For a few good reasons. One of the good reasons is that if you if you you know bought a pizza for a bitcoin, <laughs> you got one pizza for what would now be worth a million rand. Uh, <laughs> so that is funny, but it's also funny because it is always a gimmick. Anyone who like had the slightest inkling of how it actually works knew that that was a gimmick. Okay, what bitcoin work? What bitcoin is much more like is like a bond but a bond with no coupon, so that sucks. Usually you buy a bond and you get 2% of that bond's value back every year, and you don't get that with Bitcoin. But unlike with bonds, there's no government that can increase the total quantity 
and that's kind of a good thing. Uh, if uh, you just follow the basics of supply and demand, the supply can't ever go up. So as the demand increases, the price will increase, and that's how you make your money. So Elon Musk did a couple of smart things. One of them was to stop pretending like Bitcoin is a clever way to pay for Teslas. Bitcoin is not a clever. Why? Well, no, what he company didn't, he didn't say, say. Imagine General okay, Electric hold saying, on, hold on, slow down, look, here's, slow down. here's our policy. Uh, because General Electric or General Motors is an American company and we really like American bonds and we really want people to get more into the American bond market, you can buy your Ford or your electricity or whatever using an American bond. That would be a crazy way to try okay, and but boost the demand for American bonds. And it's crazy yeah. to think that Bitcoin are good for buying Teslas. That's just not the kind of thing Bitcoin is or ever was or ever will be. It is a useful way to hide your money from the predations of uh, expansionary monetary policy from and so on and inflation and hedging against stock market crashes. There's all kinds of reasons to buy Bitcoin. Use the, the thought that you can buy Bitcoin to then later use it to buy something else without transferring it into it an actual medium of exchange is silly. And he's pushed back against that a little bit while at the same time going on SNL, bragging about having Asperger's, being hilarious in his super awkward, I'm a billionaire who's flipping reinvented the space rocket and has ideas about tubes and, elect and reinvented the electric car. You know, I'm so amazing that you might as well just laugh at how weird I am. He, he made himself likable and familiar but weirdly, the only secondary for people who've actually watched the SNL skits, and by the way, SNL has put those skits on YouTube, which they didn't use to do. So you can actually just watch it and it's funny. But instead, everyone's like uh, thinking that this wasn't a comedic appearance about his personality, but is instead part of a ploy to really screw around at the stock market. OK, Nick, give me your comeback. I can see you waiting. I'm so sorry. the way it's been reported the way it's been kind of carried in the news, and I don't know if he said anything in addition to this, is that he doesn't have a problem with buying Bitcoins, uh, with using Bitcoins to buy Teslas. He just thinks that it uses too much electricity and this is bad That's for the environment. That is a problem. Right. So so he's so not... He does have a not, problem. He, right. He's not accepted your, your argument that Bitcoin is not good for a currency. He's that just, is my argument. The reason it's not good for a currency... One way to think about it is that it's bad for the environment. Another way to think about it is that it's expensive. Right. But I, I do think there is a distinction there to some degree. So he's saying, he's basically saying, look, uh, you know, when we create the fusion reactor or whatever, then it's absolutely cool. I'm going to do Bitcoin as a currency. Oh, if you if energy suddenly becomes free, which the mm. fusion reactor yeah, you know, okay, okay, won't make it free, but you know, if energy but is super bad, cheap, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super duper cheap, then that changes the game somewhat. But it still doesn't change the game. Look, uh, I don't want to get into the details of this, this because is, I can't remember is, the terminology. But here's here's <laughs> one way to think about it. There's a very nice report. One way to think about it, which spells things out like this, and I'm just going to use uh, vague language. A credit card company like Visa or Mastercard deals with just a, a, a Brazilian transactions per day. Okay. Right. They use that's a, that's one a very system. large number Brazilian. A Brazilian is more than a gazillion. Okay. <laughs> but it's less than a, a, a bedillion. If we must get it or a quintillion. Okay. Brazilian is just the right number for a number that you can't remember. They do a Brazilian 
uh, transactions every day, and it would be super expensive to do it in one way. That's hyper secure. So here's what they do. They do all the daily transactions in like a secure way, but less secure. And then at the end of the day, you close the accounts by doing another kind of transaction. Because what often happens is I bank with X bank and I buy something from a company that also banks with X bank. All that's really happening is that the bank is changing the, the, the actual currency of rands is never involved. The bank is just moving something on its books. But when I buy something from another bank, then the one bank has to transfer a sort of real value to the other bank. So the banks figure out what is the net difference at the end of the day. I bought something from a, a company that's at that bank, but someone who banks with that bank bought from a company that banks with my bank. So if we bought exactly the same amount, the banks wouldn't have to exchange any money. Uh, the, the net would be zero. But if someone bought slightly more than the other person, then there is a net change. So at the end of the day, there's a net transfer, and that uses a different kind of system. Now, that kind of system, the transfers are, let's say, you know, $20 per transaction. Whereas the transfers on the little, when I tap my card at the pick and pay, that is like two cents per transaction. Right. Now, Bitcoin costs about $25 per transaction. Right. So it can't be used for all the little thingies. But it can be used for interbank exchange. Or it's the same kind of cost that you bear if, you, if you're buying a lot of stocks. Part of the way that uh, a stock broker like the one that you used and that the Wall Street Bets guys used is that they have a similar underwriting system where, you're, where they're kind of holding the value for you like a bank yeah. is holding value for you. So that's how they make it super cheap. But that's also why they have to have a clearance at the end of the day, which is why they have to have a certain amount of reserves, which makes it weaker. It means if there's a huge change in the market, it's not just because they're nefarious dudes. They actually have to stop some of the exchanges because they won't be able to meet their clearance requirements. So right. the guys who don't want to be at risk of that, and that is all uh, professional investors use another instrument and that instrument, uh, unless they're doing for, for regular bond trade, for regular bond and stock security trades, it is going to come out as a much more ex expensive way of going about it. Um, and then high frequency traders basically build their own platform to have their own clearance. And then within that do a Brazilian transactions per second and they use laser beams to make it super fast. And this all sounds like it's not true because I'm putting it in a flippant way, but it's actually true. And this is how it works. <laughs> and so Bitcoin should be thought of not like Visa and MasterCard, but more like the banking company system clearance uh, consortium that you've never even heard of, but that deals in uh, uh, like hundreds of billions of dollars in clearance a day, uh, that, that, you know, at $20 a transaction or whatever. That's what it's like, like the deep background. And Dogecoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin in particular is much cheaper. It's much more like the whatever, whatever. So Bitcoin, yeah, yeah. Dogecoin, but, look, I'm not saying that's how they ought to relate. And there's, there's a huge crypto war to be the guy who gets the MasterCard kind of clearance, cheap clearance thing. Um, and there's a huge war about then how do you index that value? Do you want to index it to dollars? Do you want to index it to Bitcoin? Do you want to index it to something else? Um, that indexing is happening in some parts, but not in other parts. It's all it's all very up in the air. And all that Elon Musk did was, as a joke, say that Bitcoin is a hustle. And you should watch the clip. I mean, he's not saying it's a hustle. I had no idea he said that. I thought that uh, the, the, the trolling thing was, was the... Um... The, you know, saying, oh, we're going to, the whole world is going to be able to buy, you know, Teslas and the thing. And then suddenly, as though he hadn't thought about it, 
kind of like two weeks later being like, oh, so oops, sorry, guys, didn't realize how much electricity it used. Guess we won't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, so he that I, I do agree that that was a little bit silly. And I think it's always silly and to he, say you can buy Tesla's with Bitcoin. That, right, he's done that before the with, the, that company with the price of... Right, he's done that before with the price of uh, with with st uh, Tesla stock price. Right, he said something like, <laughs> uh, "To be honest, kind of think that Tesla's overpriced right now and caused a huge yeah. drop in the stock price." <laughs> yeah, and that's and and I would call it. I mean, he and Warren Buffett agreed. <laughs> um, yeah, no, saying, I, I, I'm not saying the his, truth. I'm not. Yeah, uh, he may he may not have been lying uh, or, or or anything like that. In fact, I I think he was he was completely correct. Um, but to sort of tweet it out like that and be a bit sort of flippant about it does kind of come off as a bit trollish. Yeah, the board has definitely tried to get rid of him a few times for for not <laughs> foolishly advertising Tesla all the way. But dude, I mean, what kind of would you rather have a CEO that's always just saying the next quarter is going to be the best quarter in the world, or a CEO that's like, frankly, our market capitalization is not justified by our revenues or our potential growth in market share so yes our stock price is overvalued and now's a good time to sell <laughs> i mean i think right. that kind of ballsy honesty he sounds the only an analog that i can think of it in history is like the british aristocrat in the 19th century it's like well you know my estate's not that good and my cardigan's a little bit holy but i let me tell you a joke about a frenchman and a german and a russian walking into a saloon you know, he is just that kind of silly, quirky. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a, he's a crazy eccentric, a uh, mad billionaire. I think I think I, I think I've said this before on the podcast how I think they're quite valuable. Anyway, that was a complete digression because that was a completely flip and throwaway comment that I had barely thought about, and I didn't realize I was about to uncork a bottle of. I'm not quite sure what that was, but whatever it was, <laughs> it was it was it was quite intense. Um, so now that you've inevitably angered people who like Bitcoin, uh, I why like don't we Bitcoin. talk about? Okay, yes, no, I know. Just not as a currency. <laughs> Sorry, I know, but there are, okay, there are a lot of people irritated. who are very, are very yeah. passionate about. Yeah, you're taking a position that irritates kind of everyone there. I think, yes. even okay. if it's right. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. uh, now that we've irritated all of those people, let's uh, irritate more people by talking about Israel and Palestine. Um, <laughs> that was a good segue. Very well. <laughs> if I do say so myself. No, I, I agree. I'd like to pause and have a sip of <laughs> process. The so, hot flaming anger that's already emerged. Uh, yeah, so uh, as, as we speak and over the past couple of days, um, there has been a big flare-up in violence between Israel and Palestine. Uh, at least sort of 50 people or so have been killed, probably more. Um, I know that a senior Hamas uh, leader was killed, I think, the other, other uh, last night, maybe even, um, by Israel. And although there are some motions towards negotiation to, to have another ceasefire, it does seem like this round is a bit more intense than we've had for a while of uh, conflict between the two sides. Um, so I think it's a difficult story to tell, partially because... You know, everyone gets so heated about this topic that it's very difficult to find out what everyone agrees was the cause. Um, so I think there's several several explanations you could put forward. The one I've heard, 
And I think the one that that many uh, sort of pro-Palestinian people have put forward is that it's related to this case, um, which is quite an interesting one. You might be interested in this uh, property rights perspective. I don't know if you've heard about it, Gabriel. But so the story is in the 1870s, a group of Jewish settlers bought some land in East Jerusalem or was it West Jerusalem? I don't know. Anyway, a suburb of Jerusalem, they bought some some territory there. Then, um, so they bought that the, from... Did you say the 1870s? 1870s, yes. So they bought this, like in the early days of the Zionist project, when the area was ruled by the Ottoman Empire. So a very long time ago. Mm. Anyway, they got their title deeds and stuff, and they then uh, sort of ran that property, uh, people living there, until 1947, when Israel's um, sort of the independence war happens, and... Uh, Jordan occupies the part of Jerusalem that uh, that this land was in. And so, you know, they the, the Jewish settlers basically lost their land rights and they fled to Israel, but they kept the title deeds. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 1976, the Israelis uh, in the Six-Day War retake this part of Jerusalem, or take this part of Jerusalem, I suppose, Um from the Jordanians, and it's now, you know, under Israeli control. But in the meantime, the Jordanians have moved a bunch of Palestinian families in there and said, hey, you guys can stay in this property, basically. Sorry, quick fact so, check. The Six-Day yeah. War was 1967, not 76. Okay, but oh, so sorry. I, after the Six-Day War. I the numbers confused, but yes, yeah, yeah in 1967. Um, get it. Israel gets that land, and now the guys want to move back in. They're like, hey, we've got our title deeds. Yeah. And so the, the the Palestinian settlers who say they are like, yeah, well, the government put us here and it's not our fault. And, you know, you guys, you're all a bunch of invaders anyway. So, like, uh, don't tell us to move. So they come to some sort of agreement where the people living there are going to pay rent. Um, to this the title sort of, deed holders or to the government? To the title deed holders, I think, yeah. Okay, so we don't have to move anyone, but you do need to pay the money. Right. Um so I'm not 100. You might might want to listeners if they're curious about this case might want to to fact check me on some of this because I'm not 100 percent sure. But I believe what happens then is uh, some of this rent doesn't get paid. Eventually, there's sort of general non-payment, and the the the, the people living there are basically sort of um are uh, you know legally squatting, uh, sort of legally illegally squatting in this sort of gray area. So the People who own the the land, they sell it to someone else, and he's a developer, and he's like, okay, cool, I can't get rent from these guys. This land is quite valuable because, you know, it's in Jerusalem, and so I want to move you guys all out because you're not paying rent, and I want to build a development here. So this has now gone to court um, in Israel, and I think it's now on its – it was on its way to the Supreme Court just before this violence broke out. It's still on its way, yeah. So – the sort of Palestinian side says, well, you guys are all occupiers and invaders anyway, and that title deed doesn't make sense because it's very old and blah, 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 blah. So you guys should just leave these people alone. Don't evict them. This is their home. They've been living there for, you know, decades. Um, this mm. is this is cruel and stuff. And so the eviction itself and the police action to evict the people resulted, I think, in, in violence. Uh, people throwing stones at the cops, the cops beating up people. That gave Israel a lot of bad press. Um, and that has been one of the things used as the sort of catalyst, I think, for this conflict. 
But I think there's more to the story, as there always is whenever you see a flare oh, up sure. in the. Oh, for sure. The, is, and there's also been kind of... lots of tension around uh, important prayers in the build up to Eid. Uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. COVID restrictions, and of course there was the terrible tragedy um, on the Israeli side, where I think 50 people were trampled to death um, in a yeah, in such a strange and sad nightmare uh, that became a reality. But but it, that wasn't the, the only one. There was also sort of uh, nasty encounters between cops and Muslims trying to. Uh, have public prayers, and there's a lot of tension about uh, more and more Jews basically praying in spots that are considered to be, well, both Jewish and Muslim sacred sites. And right. The, so I think one of the one of the tensions is that um, so the, the 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 Dome of the Rock is the the big mosque in Jerusalem, the big shiny one with the the golden dome. And that is built on the site of the the Temple Mount, which is the holiest place in Judaism. So since Jordan was kicked out of the area, uh, the Temple Mount Mount has been and, and the Dome of the Rock Mosque have been run by a Jordanian association. It was part of the sort of agreement. So even though yeah. the territory is occupied by Israel, it's run by this Jordanian agreement, and they said no Jews to pray here. This is a Muslim site. Yeah. So. Uh, Jewish nationalists, I think every year, do a march where they go past one of these spots or relatively close to it, and it's basically calling for the thing to be open to to Jews and and other stuff too. Like, um, and so this year there also seem to have been uh, some panic amongst the, the the people running the mosque that these uh, marches would storm the mosque, and so a crowd gathered to defend it. And that was also a cause of some sort of tensions. But I think I think the point here is that there's so much bad blood basically between the two sides that you know if you're looking for a grievance to start something over, it's very easy to find one. Yeah. Um, some someone someone did something to someone somewhere, and so it's very easy to be like, and this is the reason why we're going to shoot rockets or drop bombs or whatever. Yeah. My theory onto why there's been this little flare-up in, in violence, is that the Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, who are governed by Fatah, which is the party of Mahmoud Abbas, um, as opposed to Gaza, which is governed by Hamas, um, Fatah is kind of in a sort of awkward agreement with the Israelis, where the Israelis have, have largely demilitarized them um, and you know occupied their territory, but at the same time they let them run parts of the West Bank. Whereas yeah. Hamas is completely hostile to, to Israel and is basically blockaded in Gaza. Uh, so yeah. the Palestinians last had election in 2004, I think it was, in the West Bank. And uh, so, Fatah, so since the Ottoman Empire, but not as recently as. <laughs> right. So a long time ago. And Fatah won that, but. Every time that the four-year term of their president has expired, Fatah has basically said, oh, well, we can't hold the election now. Um, and the, the reason for that is widely believed to be because they suspect that they will lose to Hamas in a in an election. Um, and they don't want to lose power. Yeah. Uh, and and a lot of people are like, okay, well, that's fine. Don't have an election because Hamas yeah, will be worse. Want, right, right, right. This is kind of suits the Israelis because they don't want to have to basically fight Hamas in the West Bank as well. So uh, recently, 
um, uh, Fatah cancelled the elections again, which were scheduled to be hold, held, I think, quite soon, um, either this year or next year, uh, which is, you know, once again extending Mahmoud Abbas's term. And I suspect that part of what's going on here is actually it's Hamas trying to unseat Fatah um, by, uh, you know, they starting a conflict with Israel and then in the sort of chaos, they can undermine Fatah and they can also make Fatah look weak. I mean, Hamas basically says, you know, you guys are the lapdogs of the Israelis. Uh, we need to throw you out and replace you with, you know, people who will stand up for the Palestinians. So that's definitely part of it. Uh, part of it is also the fact that Iran is supplying Hamas with new tech, um, better missiles than they normally have or better rockets. Uh, so, you know, with, with, with that better tech, I think that Hamas feels a little bit stronger than it normally does. Yeah. Um, maybe it thought that it was a good time to cause some trouble for Israel. Also, the Israelis have recently killed, I think, um, or are very strongly alleged to have killed some Iranian nuclear scientists, uh, among other things, and also using another computer viruses for the second time to destroy Iranian nuclear facilities. So it may be that Iran is saying to their allies in Hamas, uh, guys, why don't you just do us a favor and hit these dudes back for, for killing our guy? Um, yeah. What's, what's and, your take on it, Gabriel? Uh, do you think I'm missing anything? Do you think I'm wrong about anything? Uh, no, I mean, I think you're broadly right. There's uh, a, a disputed property, disputed property rights, uh, which is just about the oldest reason in the book to go to war there <laughs> is a long-standing ethnic racial religious tension in fact i said or oh, i should have said and because all three of those yeah. are brought to yes. bear <laughs> uh there there uh yeah the etiology of this conflict is sort of traces back ultimately thousands of years um and the balance of forces uh, in the in the very recent past are, I think, largely as you've described it. Iran, Tehran, very antagonistic to uh, Tel Aviv, uh, Jerusalem, and allies. I think the forward-looking one forward-looking thing to note, um, which uh, on which I'm sure you'll see a piece shortly, not coming from me, but check out the Daily Friend, is that. Israel might be in a sort of knowably vulnerable position mm. in the sense that, okay, so just a bit of context. Uh, Israel's Iron Dome, pretty solid, uh, but like 400 yeah, rockets. The, with of, the anti-missile defense system that shoots down yeah. the Palestinian rockets. Yeah, when they use missiles to shoot down rockets. Um, but some of, the, some of those rockets got through, and, that, and only mm. a few hundred were launched. So if a few thousand are launched, it's like if when a few hundred are launched, 2% get through. When a few thousand are launched, more like 10% get through, right? Mm. This sort of overwhelms it. So the Iron Dome is amazing. It really is amazing, but it's not perfect. And that's one thing to note. Another thing to note is then what happens is the Iron Dome strikes these things down, and then the Israelis launch these guided missiles to take out the rocket launch sites. And uh, I think most people would be aware of a big building that was bombed, some people did die. The way this is presented is that uh, Israel will first launch a dud. 
they do all kinds of things to try and warn civilians uh, mm-hmm. to get to get in the clear. And one of the things on particularly targeted buildings is first they'll launch a dud. So you, it's like it's called a knock on the roof. So you hear a dud, you know, a dud <laughs> lands on the roof, and you're like, okay, well, this building is still around. I'm I'm alive underneath, but an actual bomb is going to come shortly. That's going to destroy it. So run away. So there's right. enough time between the dud and the real missile for people to run away but not enough time to remove uh material military infrastructure and and that system is not perfect some civilians do die but it is the most restrained way really to take out military infrastructure uh that has been deliberately positioned inside a residential area and uh if you yeah, if you think back a little bit to World War Two or wars since then, you know there really are much much worse ways of doing it. Tokyo, how much? I think almost two thirds of Tokyo were firebombed. Right, and like fifty thousand people or something in one night. Yeah, yeah, but over the course of it, hundreds of thousands yeah. uh, of civilians. Um, there's an argument to be made, I, and in fact, I think it's pretty clear that more people were killed by quite a lot. Um, just by ordinary conventional bombs in Japan. Yeah, then by the nuclear bombs. And by the mm. nuclear bombs. And the nuclear bombs are memorable moments, but you should think of them as something like the tip of the iceberg. So, so why am I saying this? Well, it, the uh, on one version, uh, Israel's precision m- missiles are ordered from America largely on a just-in-time basis. So a little bit like Tokyo's, uh, not Tokyo, Toyota's revolutionary way of doing cars and such. You get the orders, you get the parts to make the car just in time so that you don't have to waste as much money on storage, storage parts, and stuff. basically, yeah. um, and supply chain management. Uh, it's a more effective way to go. So they don't really have a huge stockpile of these things. And they might be in a position where America's got the stockpile, but not as eager to sell them right now. So this matters because on this version, Hezbollah in the north in Lebanon has well, an order of one's other ally. Yeah, right. Have have many more rockets. And so the thing to watch out for in the next couple of weeks is whether they then launch those rockets. And Israel's put in the position where it can't take out the rocket launch sites uh, because it's run out of in the in a restrained way, relatively restrained way, because it's run out of targeted missiles, hmm. and can't afford not to take out those sites because the iron. So it starts will, using will be overwhelmed. Tech, basically. So it starts yeah. using conventional tech, which will kill hundreds of civilians, if not thousands, and that will create even more bad press. Uh, I mean, most importantly, it'll kill people. But in terms of the sort of national context, yeah. uh, and uh, with with the sort of Jerusalem as the moral heart of the issue, and Israel's killing of lots of civilians as the pumping blood, uh, the yeah, it might really inflame both the worst sides of sort of nationalism inside of Israeli politics and of uh, nationalism inside Iranian politics to, yeah, just make a real mess. 
The of likes course. of which we haven't seen for many years. Um, and uh, right, do and, that, uh, yeah. and you might reverse some of the gains that have happened in the last few years where more Arab and Muslim-majority countries have recognized Israel, have opened diplomatic channels with them, have canceled no flight zone and no you know trade, right. opened up trade, and all these kinds of good things that have happened might then, uh, well, so, certainly so, be put uh, under pressure, but might reverse. And uh, I'm just painting this as sort of worst-case scenario, but it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the 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 view I've always taken of the the Abraham Accords, which is the the peace yeah. agreement with with the, you know the Saudis, the UAE, those those places, is that um, that was really because it is a prelude to larger conflict uh, between Israel and Iran, and that the dividing lines in the future will not be you know Jews and Muslims or Arabs and Israelis. It's going to be Nation more complicated. States. Yeah, nation states, Israel, Saudi, UAE versus uh, Iran and Turkey, possibly. Um, although Turkey has more, a very, he's playing a very complicated game in the Middle East right now. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of acting as a, trying to establish itself as a regional power. And it's doing pretty well, actually, yeah. um, which I think is not so good because its President Erdogan is, to quote Donald Trump, a bad hombre. Um <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the other thing that's interesting about this whole thing is that Israel's going through a political crisis at the moment as well because they keep having to rehold elections because no one can agree to form a government. Because the central character in Israeli politics is their current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, or Bibi as he's usually called. And uh, he, he, he basically, like, as far as I understand, and I don't understand Israeli politics very well. But basically, everyone has either become for or against Bibi. And the problem is Netanyahu doesn't seem to be, want to allow the possibility of a government uh, that doesn't include him as prime minister. And yet it, the only thing necessary that the other parties will agree to is a coalition which doesn't have him as the prime minister. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a real mess. And I think they're going for their fifth election now. My friend in Israel who... I just want to say, continue to play computer games through a rocket attack near her house, <laughs> yeah. which is <laughs> which is quite something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, what else are you going to do? But really, <laughs> she's she's very annoyed at the prospect of having to vote again, yeah. especially because the last four or something have not produced. Uh, much of a change in the political calculus. Yeah, and, so the uh, effective strategy seems to be like, can we just get some voter fatigue where one <laughs> side's voters get bored enough and tired enough, frustrated enough that they just stop voting and then the other side gets a proper majority. And and one of the things that looked like it was going to happen in, in just before this outbreak of hostilities, and maybe this was also a cause of, of everything to, to happen like it did, was that for the first time, the Arab... Uh, parties, the parties that claim to represent Arab interests in Israel um, looked like they might be brought in in some sort of coalition to ask Benjamin Netanyahu. And this would have been the first time that an Arab party had been sort of involved in forming a government. Correct. Maybe they wouldn't, you know, maybe it wouldn't have lasted long or that kind of thing, but it, it would have been quite historic in that sense. Uh, and of course, the moment the hostilities broke out, tension soured and no one wanted to do it anymore, particularly because there's also been like sort of com intercommunal violence. I think there's a town called Lot yeah. in Israel, which yeah. is mixed, uh, you know, mixed Arab and Israeli. Yeah. And it and it devolved into violence, um, and that has basically soured relations, and so they couldn't form a coalition. So, pretty bad. So stuff. I and I um, think that's the most important part of the story, right? Is that 
Hmm. Israel is complicated in the following sense. Um, it is basically a theocracy, right? It's like a religious-based state. Uh, yeah, I would now, call it theocracy, a religious nationalist state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that that's a very bad idea. Uh, right. Religious nationalist states, not a good idea. But here's a fun fact. The UK is a, a, is a <laughs> religion nationalist state. The head of state is more, the... More literally a, a theocracy than, than Israel, uh, yes. because it actually is the, the state and church completely fused. <laughs> yes, in one person's body, Queen Elizabeth II. But the reason yes. it works is because no one takes it seriously, right? It's just nominal. It's just on paper. Uh, and... And 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 in a way, that is the end game to my mind of Israel. That it's it's a Jewish state in name only. That no one that that you know that you really do have uh, the the real and manifest possibility of non-Jews gaining political office, gaining uh, esteem. Uh, gaining uh, property and so on and so forth. That, that, that there's a real kind of equality in the public square for Jews and non-Jews, and 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 I and I think sometimes you know I, uh, I don't know Sam Harris is an interesting guy on this because I think his his views broadly in line with that. But at one but earlier on he was very kind of intense atheist, and he thought you have to start by ending the 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 ending the changing the words you have to stop thinking of israel as a jewish state and israel has to stop thinking of itself as a jewish state in in very open and expressed terms and then that'll change the reality on the ground um i think it's better to go the other way you know like the uk did you can keep the keep the nomenclature but just have coalitions between arab and non-arab political parties between muslim and jewish parties and so on have people working together in business, have people learning together in schools, have people playing together in sport and inventing together and so on. And and the last few years of relative peace have been good for that. And there are very important parts of uh, Israel's democracy that strongly and robustly defend uh, the rights of non-Jewish and or Arab Israelis. Right, like Supporters of Israel will will say in response to that that that's already in many senses the case. Like for example, exactly, that exactly, exactly. I think there's some Arabs on the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um. And 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 other senior spheres. There's Arabs in Parliament. Um, yeah. You know, it's not it's not just non-Jews. It's it's you know Arabs who are their 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 main sort of antagonists in the area. Yeah. Yeah. Or no, so historically, very much, very much. I'm saying that this was happening, that this has been mm. happening for a long time, and that it's been getting better and better in the last few years. And what this that we've seen in the last few days does, uh, and in the last few weeks in the buildup to the little mini war so far, is 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 turn neighbor against neighbor, and and good neighbors are you know good fellow citizens are really the greatest asset in a public square. Um, so it's that erosion that you spoke to of of uh, these sort of open political alliances. And uh, and really at the grassroots levels, just you know, neighbors getting along, being happy that their kids play together, being happy to meet each other, and so on. That's uh, that's very sad. It's very sad beyond the death uh, in terms of the go forward. 
it's a it's a problem. So I, I just want to contextualize this by saying I, I think that yeah, we've probably irritated everyone. There's one kind of interesting person who <laughs> who feels like, okay, here's what's irritating. Uh oh, this fight's been going on forever and it just and uh you know, everyone's either on one side or on the other side, and it's too much like why should we care so much? Don't we talk about this kind of thing? Much too much. You know, mm. there's there's terrible things happening right. all around the world. How many times did you guys do a podcast on uh, terrible incidents in the, the Rohingya Ethiopia. genocide and right. Ethiopia? Well, as it happens, you know, people who've listened to this podcast a long time will know that we hardly <laughs> ever talk about this. We do actually talk a lot about that stuff, actually. <laughs> we but, talk about yeah. that other stuff. We hardly ever talk about Israel-Palestine. Um, yeah. It is an important thing to talk about. Uh, when the time comes, and 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 just notice this: since the plague, it's almost been as if everyone's getting their turn. All the old stories have had their turn to to be dramatically uh, and arrestingly developed on the in the global public sphere. So the the first one to really get its turn was, in a way the uh, sort of black race nationalist movement or black pan-Africanist movement. Um, right. After the killing of George Floyd, terrible thing. We did a podcast about that. Uh, you know, I, I think the conviction was correct. The allegation that this was racist in this particular case, unsubstantiated entirely. The allegation that there's broad systemic racism right. in terms of police killing black on, on men, uh, very much contradicted by the fact facts. If anything, it goes the other right. way. These are less likely to shoot and kill unarmed black people than than other people by incident. Um, uh, so police brutality should have been the issue. That didn't get its turn. What did get its turn was sort of black race nationalism. Um, I think that uh, China very much got its turn kind of before that oh, yeah. as like an issue for people to rally around either for or against mostly against in the circles we're in um in south africa i think the, certainly yeah, the sorry. outrage about china has certainly animated my spirit probably more than anything else in the past two years yeah um I, I don't know. I, I think I'm I'm I think it's fair to say I'm probably more antagonistic towards China than you are, although I know you also are not a friend of the, the Communist Chinese Party. No, I'm not a friend of the party. Um, uh, I think that America got its turn in a really big way, as opposed to just sort of uh, black race nationalism or something uh, with with the end of the Trump Oh, that uh, that whole mess, yeah. Incitement of violence and the storming of the White House and all that. So there have been these, like, yeah, these, and and of course, libertarians have have strangely gotten their turn in terms of the <laughs> the, the kinds of anti-mask riots in the Netherlands and parts of Europe and in America and so on and so forth. Oh yeah, it's funny how little the Taiwanese continental got their turn with the with the freedom yeah, yeah. pineapples which i really liked oh yes 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 those were very good uh it's it's weird how little coverage those continental anti-mask yeah. riots get as opposed to the u.s at least in the english-speaking press yeah um well, i think a lot of journalists <laughs> can't speak italian so they don't that's short yeah but i mean they get reported so it's not like the facts are not available yeah. uh but there just doesn't seem to be kind of interest in the media in them it's kind of weird 
it's it's I guess some of it is a sort of culture war belief that the only people who could be against masks are like rednecks who vote for Trump. Yeah. Um and that, you know, when sort of you know, supposedly super sophisticated people in the Netherlands who are often held up, especially by people on the left in America as like, you know, the paragons of culture and virtue, um, you know, clash with riot police over mask wearing doesn't really fit the worldview very nicely. Yeah. It's Europeans more, are supposed to be above that. I think more attention did go to Australia. Uh, yes. Which, which, and Australia is like the new America in a way, you know, it's even yeah. further west if you keep going in the same direction. <laughs> well, yes, and it's, but... <laughs> it's got a lot of the same kind of new money, uh, crass, like every Australian I can, like I see just more and more when I was, uh, 22 or whatever, the only Australian accent I was used to hearing on the television was, uh, the sort of good looking blonde doctor in house the tv show and now it's oh look just lots it's just australians everywhere and they oh, uh, with the exception Especially of a lot of acting actually yeah with the exception of kate blanchett who is uh an ideal person um you mean lady galadriel <laughs> no i mean kate blanchett dude i she is she is <laughs> She, uh, uh, what was his name? Ben Brantley was the great New York Times uh, theater critic who, as one study once showed, a bad review from him would cost a production at least $4 million. Uh, he really had class. Uh, he, he, I think, uh, described Kate Blanchett as the, as the greatest actress of her generation. Uh, she's, I, yeah, I think a lot of people don't know she, she's a stage actress who sometimes appears yeah, you, in movies. You seem... You seem to uh, be drawing a distinction here as though Kate Blanchett and Lady Galadriel are different people, Galadriel, different people, which which I don't think has been proven. That's why okay. they cast her for the role, because she was just playing herself. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Okay, but so most of the Australians are just like really brash and outright like Jim Jeffries. Like they just, they're, they're, they're like, they're just like more Americans than Americans. Uh, and so it kind of makes sense that they, that they riot against wearing masks and, and they got a little bit of their turn on that front the right. south africans australia not so like, much australia is like the one country in the world where you can buy a farm and basically be your own country because the farm is so big you can just yeah. go out into your to, your to the drive from your from your front gate to your house can be three hours <laughs> yeah yeah and it's a different be, world and it'll be hot yes it'll be piping hot yeah, so yeah, the Middle East has its turn to mm. to freak everyone out. And it's a good time. You know, I wonder I think it's an interesting there's something esteemy about it that's very interesting. Like I I change my mind about that conflict all of the time in the sense that new facts get updated. Mm. New facts about this particular case of the of the properties that you know have this have these contesting claims for ownership and residency new facts updated about the status of israel's defense and attack system and about the neighbor's defense and attack system new facts about the elections being cancelled you know the story evolves in that sense but i'm not sure that my sort of esteem vibe has changed in the sense that like as a as a teenager, I was, I suppose, 
quite aggressively pro-Palestine, um, <laughs> as were most of my fellows saying, hey, Joe, you know, this is a But that, was, but that was back when you were a misguided lefty, Gabriel. I, I was. Yeah, I was changed. <laughs> but, but not, and it didn't take long. I mean, I was still a young, in the first part of my teens when, when that change occurred on this issue as well. Um, and I, and, and so now, anyway, the reason I say this is because most of the, aside from the professional media, and I really avoid the sort of mentioning, you know, I try and stick to Reuters and AP news on, on, on these things. And well, some, Reuters has put up, Reuters has put up a paywall now, which is very annoying, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, but the app is still pretty good. AP news, I'm, I must say, I've, I've gone from being a Reuters man to being an AP news man. Uh, okay, I'll check out AP News myself as well. More. Yeah, they, but but most of the Facebook stuff is just like pick a side, right? Oh yeah, no, Facebook is and, terrible. And it's Trevor happens. Noah, you know, Trevor Noah is my favorite one. It was reposted by a lot of my friends. He's like, I'm not going to pick a side, but you know, really, Israel's so big and strong, and Palestine's <laughs> yeah. so little. Like you've got to be on the Palestinian side, but side. one side is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, one side is big, and big is wrong. Sort of. Yeah. Um. My, I'm just not on either side in that sense. Like I'm on the side of democracy, uh, rule of law, stability. So in those senses, I'm definitely far, you know, Israel checks a lot more boxes for me than any of its neighbors, really. And so I want more of its neighbors to be more like Israel. And I want Israel to be more like the UK. Um, the, so... Yeah, so can and, I, and, can and I so I'm a... stuck in that. Like, I, I, I think short of a miracle, like, or getting bonked on the head, I don't think that's going to change in me. And so I feel almost disingenuous talking about it because in that sense, I don't have an open mind. I mean, technically yeah. I do. I suppose someone could persuade me that an autocratic form of theocracy uh, is, <laughs> which is kind of race-based and, and I, I, I can't even finish the sentence. I just can't imagine someone persuading me that that's the better way to go about things. Um, and 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 that impulse is is uh, an undercurrent in Israeli politics that threatens to grow and is the dominant current in Hezbollah, Hamas, the Ayatollahs of Tehran, even in Fatah, actually, and even in Fatah. And so it's like. On the basis of those standards, I just I just can't draw a comfortable moral equivalency between the political the major political actors. Uh, so you know I'm not pro-Israel anti-Palestine, but like on my basic standards of 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 political science and what what ought my norms of what ought to be implemented so that people can enjoy liberty and prosperity. Uh, there's just one side is much closer than the other. And so I want the other side to to come closer to that side and that side to grow. Okay, I'm repeating myself, but do you see where I'm coming from, Nick? Like, I yeah, feel no, like uh, there's no, it's hard to weigh into this thing uh, while holding on to one's principles uh, and holding on to a kind of generosity of spirit towards the political right factions. So, to so, both. So, so, yeah, no, I think I think that's a, that's a you, you you've got a bit of a you've you've quite nicely explained the the difficulties that that, that you have with this issue. Um, 
so I would describe myself as, as pro-Israel, although I don't get animated about it, because it's not like I don't think that there aren't some legitimate grievances on the other side. I just think that, uh, you know, uh, that one side has sort of the better argument of it for the most part. And I think part of the reason for that, and this is, I think, what you'll find sort of controversial, is that I am a bit more sympathetic, I think, to the idea of a Jewish state than you are. Now, I agree with a lot of your criticism there that it's a bit um, problematic, uh, <laughs> to use a, a lefty term, uh, to have. Yeah, to have man, don't, of, don't, don't let the left own that term, monopolize that term. It, there are problems. There are problems that we can all see. We don't know, have to. I, I, I'm not a huge fan of ethno religious states. I like. Um, I, I like identities that anyone can enter or exit very easily. Um, I think I think those are the best things to form for form states around. Uh, things that are not sort of all encompassing identities that are not all encompassing tend to be the best things to form a, a state around. And so, ethno-religious state not terribly comfortable with it. Um, but I do think the Jews have a stronger argument than most from history that they have this sort of unique history where it's not entirely unique. But they have been a minority in a lot of places. And an abused minority, a terribly, viciously, and a, atrociously, yeah. genocidally abused minority. Absolutely. Right. Right. And so the idea that they could have a single place from which to sort of establish themselves and protect the, the, those customs, those traditions, those religions and those people um, from, from, from abuse or destruction or marginalization is... Fairly solid. Now, I, you know, I think I do agree that it, I would never accept an Israeli state that, that you know, discriminated against its 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 Arab citizens in like a very serious way. Like as is the claim often made about it, you know, that it's an, an apartheid state is what pro-Israeli, as uh, pro-Palestinian people say. So, you know, if Israel really was like that, I wouldn't be happy with it. But the idea that it is, um you know, sort of first a Jewish state and character is, is I think, not a completely crazy one. No. Um, can I, as, can long I, as, it's, as long as it's fairly managed and controlled and doesn't go overboard. So I, I agree with you. And I've made this argument, right, that um, to be a non-racialist is, is only really sensible if you understand and are prepared to define and admit the limits to non-racialism. So I am a non-racialist. It's firstly how I was brought up. It's secondly something that comes very naturally to me. It's thirdly my professional life. I am about as serious as this about this as as anyone that you can find. Although I am admittedly not always a serious person and uh, and make <laughs> silly jokes. But I see as part of the duty of that seriousness an obligation to define the limits. And I see that limit very clearly in the history of apartheid. I see very clearly the argument for black race nationalism in the 70s. The black consciousness movement guys saying from the 50s saying, look, we don't want white people in the ANC or in leadership positions or whatever, because actually things are too hectic. Th things are too discriminatory. We are too oppressed uh, to to to. To do that, the best way for us to uh, rally support, to shift the esteem market, to then shift the is power to unite around our race. is to unite Hold around. Hold on, someone, now, someone is drilling a wall, so I just need to shut them up. 
Okay, yeah, I'm going to keep, keep talking. talking while now, my view is that there was and remains always a better way. I myself don't see a moment in uh, South Africa's history since 1910 where I could find any justification for myself to be a part of an all-white group. And if I were born earlier, you might as well think of me as being born with a different color skin because I'd have a different mother in any event if I was born earlier. Um, so if I'd been born uh, black in 1910, I hope that I would be uh, like many of the black people who were part of the Institute of Race Relations um, in the 20th century who really wanted to work together with white people and right. colored people and Indian people on a non-racial basis. So I think there's always a better way. But I think it's imprudent to criticize or alienate oneself from people who are taking uh, the race nationalist stance under conditions that are something like a war. But more technically, under conditions that deviate so far from uh, uh, the rule of law under a constitutional democracy that you've basically gotten to something like a, a Hobbesian state of nature where it's really just a clash of forces. So in the same vein, I completely agree that a minority that's been discriminated against on both the basis of race, Semiticism or whatever, and the basis of religion, Judaism, right, has a very compelling argument to form something like an ethno-religious state. And I fully support the, the constitution of Israel. I fully support its uh, six-day war, for example. Uh, it was not the initial aggressor, you know. Um, well, it wasn't a six-day war, but not, but it was like genuinely a preemptive strike because uh, you know the, yeah. the, its opponents were massing their armies right on the border and were yes. and literally days the from invading Egyptian right. Air Force in one day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so so I'm just saying I agree with that principle. Actually, I agree with the argument that it needs to be established that way. I'm just saying the long game. Look, Israel is going to be around for 300 years. Yeah. I can't really see much further into the future than that, but I think it's a safe bet that it's going to be around. <laughs> yeah, I can't well, see 300 years. Okay, you know what I'm saying? And and yeah. in 300 yeah. years, it'd be nice for there to be like an Arab, you know, it'd, it'd be nice for Israel's politics to really be open enough that, for example, an Arab person could be elected prime minister. Yeah. And... So I think I think I think that kind of thing is possibly you know is even possible at the moment that there was sort of uh, some genuine peace in the region between yeah. the two sides. When the when the Palestinian issue is settled, I think that might become quite likely. Um, exactly. The only so, problem is that conflict drags on. Yeah, and so what I'm so what I'm so I think where we agree is that like where things are are, are wild enough, natural enough, state of nature enough. That the that it really is force rather than rules that are dictating the background conditions for people's lives. Uh, mm. The argument for the Israeli state uh, in this sort of ethno-religious constitution uh, is stronger, but that that's not an ideal state either for Israel or for anyone. Right. Right. And it's that it's that journey which has to be piecemeal incremental exactly the kind of thing which um you know like not radical like almost conservative conservative in the exactly. sense that there is room for growth but <laughs> in, the, in the burkean sense 
Yeah, right. exactly. Birkin conserve. Conserving, uh, what's it? What, what did you say? Uh, reforming to conserve. <laughs> exactly. So that reforming to conserve, that is, that is undermined right now. And what is strengthened is the most radical thing, which is death and violence. So. Yes. Oh, well, you see, here I was thinking we were going to have an argument. We ended up agreeing. Isn't that yeah. wonderful? I've, I, you also had a plan for this episode, and I see we've actually just reached an hour. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, I abandoned my plan. I have made, okay. I have, uh, but I'll just warn the listeners about what's coming next week. So uh, if, if, if I manage to pull off my plan next week. So I, two weeks ago, I, I told the listeners about, and you, well, I told the listeners about um, Shelby Steele again. We'd already talked yeah, about yeah. His movie. You, you read out an, an anecdote from his, or you didn't read out an anecdote, but you described an anecdote. I described an anecdote. Yeah. And and what I really want to do is just read a page from this book that he published in 1989. Read out a couple of paragraphs here, a couple of paragraphs there. Because I think that Shelby Steele's prose, his own words, um, right. have a weight that the retelling doesn't quite get to. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'll, I'll reiterate my recommendation. If you can get your hands on the content of our character, it's called, by Shelby Steele. It's a collection of essays from 1988 and 1989, published in 1989, and available in some sort of very classy bookstores. Um, and so, uh, and by classy, I mean like really like secondhand. Uh, <laughs> Only the best bookstores. Gems, the kind of like hovel where you walk in and it smells like dust and no one's been there excepting like a student who went looking for some copy of Plato, whatever. Anyway, I found right. a copy there, but I'm still using my colleague's copy that she lent me. Anyway, uh, uh, check out that book. You can also get it online. And and I say that because the whole every essay is its own self-contained atom bomb for the mind, and, <laughs> and particularly for you know I think it's amazing because it's so he does such a good job of merging the personal, the political, the grand narrative, and the and the kind of view from nowhere, the kind of neutral, objective, scientific, almost approach to sociological analysis he really he really balances all three of those in quite a seamless fashion and uh so it's uh yeah it's great and i'll i'll try and read out a little bit of that and nick and i will talk about it if we can uh but in the meantime that's my recommendation because we'll only ever be able to touch on a, a, a the tip of the iceberg cool Right, well, I'll keep it short because I uh, have to let the drilling commence, the drilling that interrupted us earlier. Uh, but uh, I guess I'd recommend the thing that I wanted to do last time but forgot, which is a YouTube video if you go look for it. Um, it's if you search for largest political party since 1950, it will come up with this. So one of the one of the omissions in it is it does not include political parties which no longer kind of exist in the same form. So, for example, the Soviet Union's Communist Party is not included there, um, but the China's Chinese Communist Party, the Indian National Congress, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party are all included in that list. And it's really interesting to see how the world changed between 1950 and, and now. And uh, one of the interesting things there is that 
1950, the, you know, apart from maybe the Soviets, the largest political party in the world was uh, that's still around today is the Democrats. And nowadays, uh, it's the Bharatiya Janta Party, the Indian People's Party, which is the ruling party of India, which has something like 112 million members, which is <laughs> phenomenal. That was the sound of me trying to imagine 112 million people belonging to the same party. Yeah, it's just like, you know, we've talked about India a little bit before, which is the scale of that place in terms of, of, of human capital is incredible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a short little YouTube video. It's just showing these bar graphs going up and down. And that whole channel is actually interesting. They've got like GDP since 1870, military spending, army size, stuff like that. It's all sorts of cool, interesting stuff to look at. It gives you a weird perspective on history, I think. Um, mm. Mm. But anyway, good, that good, is good. all the time we have for this week. Uh, so I hope you all have a great week and we will see you next week. Keep the flag of liberty flying.